in June uh, 2017, three friends, Nick, Ian, and Armand, were hired to paint the home of a prominent Muslim citizen in uh, Marawai, Philippines. It was a routine job uh, that turned into a nightmare when ISIS uh, began a door-to-door cleansing of the city. Uh, For years, Christian and Muslims have lived side-by-side in this city, uh, but the spread of Islamic extremists had finally come. On May 23rd, a group of militant Islamic um, uh, radicals uh, declared their intent to make that city, Marawai, a caliphate for Islam. As the persecution and violence intensified against Christians, these three believers were forced to cower and hide in a basement for weeks. Just imagine the thoughts that were going through these three young men sitting in that basement, wondering what would their future hold. The constant barrage of gunfire they heard, would that fall upon their own heads? Would they survive to see their families again? Well, after weeks of worrying and praying for their survival, they decided to escape. Uh, They ran throughout the city, going from house to house, hiding in uh, thick shrubs. They finally made it to a river, and as they approached the river, they heard gunfire whizzing over their head uh, with the Islamic snipers who were set up to to, to take out anyone who tried to escape. Uh, they, They dove in. Sorry. Can you hear me now? There we go. They're waving at me. That was such a great illustration. Thanks, guys. Um, so these, these gunfires whizzing by uh, their head, um, and they, they dove, dove into the water. They, they made it safely across the other side. Uh, when they were interviewed by a New York Times reporter, this is what they shared. Uh, they said, we said we, we tried to, to get rescue for them if we made it out. We also had told our, ourselves that our fate was with the Lord. We told each other whatever happens, happens. If we get hit and die, that's our fate. But we had to escape or at least die trying. For years, think about this, for years these men had lived side by side with Muslim friends and coworkers, and yet persecution had finally come. Their fate was in the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. Let's say I, I, this is not the Philippines, but this was York, South Carolina. Would you hear that story differently? That these men who went to do a simple job, but instead of, uh, of going about peacefully with their day, they were threatened with their very lives. What happened if it was, if it was Lancaster? What happened if that was in Rock Hill? Would you hear that story differently? Uh, beloved, many of our brothers and sisters are dealing with that this very day. That story I just shared happened three months ago in the Philippines. Persecution and violence against Christians may be closer than we we think. What would the Lord say? What would the Lord say to encourage and strengthen the resolve of persecuted believers who were in constant fear of their future? Well, by God's grace, we don't have to wonder because God has already spoken. The book of Revelation was written to strengthen and encourage the hearts of believers who were facing severe persecution in the first century. We all know that Revelation can be kind of an enigma for Christians. Uh, There are some who are so fascinated by the prophecy and symbolism in in Revelation that that's the only book that they study. Uh, There's other people who approach Revelation and they have no idea what it says, 
So they ignore it completely. There's many pastors who are terrified to preach the book of Revelation because there's so many interpretations and there's so many strong convictions in the pew of this book. And yet, God wants it to be read and God wants it to be preached because this is a part of his holy, precious, inerrant word. And as we approach this book, we need to understand that this book was written to encourage and strengthen the faith of the church in the first century. So I pray as you study, and we study this book of Revelation, you will understand more of the prophecy, but that your, your heart would be even more resolved to hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ in the days ahead. There's a, several headings I kind of want to look at this morning. The first is the, the, def, the definite future reality. The definite future reality. One of the main purposes of the book of Revelation is to show that there is only one who is in control of our future. Our fate, as our brothers in the Philippines said, is with the Lord. Look at how this book begins. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all they saw. The book begins with that word, the revelation. It comes from the Greek word uh, apocalypse, the apocalypse of, of John. Uh, now, sometimes we think that that's kind of a mysterious word, but the way it's used in the Bible is to, it's to disclose things that were once hidden. So a mystery or, or an apocalypse in the Bible is not things that we don't know. It's actually things that we do know about. We're being revealed or uncovered in this book. Uh, many approach Revelation as it's mysterious, but John is, is unpacking that for us. The source of this prophecy is Jesus Christ himself. God the Father gave this word to Jesus, who gave it to his servants through an angel. John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, received this word and bore witness to the church. The reason why it's important to understand this was John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and the three letters of John, is because when we interpret Revelation, we have to interpret uh, Revelation in light of what John has said elsewhere. Because we have an understanding of his mind. You'll even see that this morning. But this Revelation is from Jesus and it is about Jesus Christ. We know that all Scripture is ultimately about Jesus. If you remember on the road to Emmaus, what did Jesus say to those, those travelers? Everything written about me in the law of the Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The interpretive key of the entire Bible is Jesus Christ. So although this book was written, uh, given from Jesus, it is also written primarily about the Lord Jesus. The full title of Jesus Christ, is, as, you, as you heard, Jesus Christ is found three times in these first five verses. And it is found nowhere else in the rest of the book. I think right off the bat, John is trying to show you that Jesus is the Christ by grouping them right so closely together. He writes that this revelation must, was to be written to show us the things that must soon take place. And now, this was written in the first century, and we, we've lived 2,000 years since then. It doesn't seem to be very soon. So when we think about the word soon, there are possible interpretations of how we look at that, that word. A soon could be interpreted in the sense of suddenly or without delay. 
It could also be interpreted from the standpoint of certainty. It is soon to happen, meaning it's certain to happen. Many scholars view the, the idea of soon from the perspective of the Lord. If you, if you notice from 2 Peter 3.8 says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Others believe that this, this idea of soon take place is really only referring to the persecution of the church. And we know that throughout history that this was a, the persecution did come very soon after this book was, was written. I, I personally think the most compelling perspective is the place of the concept of, of time in the prophetic literature. Right? When, you, when you approach things prophetically, the end is always eminent. So when you read through the, the Gospels and you read through Paul's epistles, you see several places where this idea of soon or near is is the idea of eminent, meaning it could happen at any moment. Now, Jesus says in Luke 18:8 that he wants to, to give justice speedily, using the same Greek word there. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 16:20, I believe, uh, that God will soon crush Satan under your, your feet. This idea, it is evident, eminent. It, it could happen at any moment. And I think the reason why is because there's something in the Scripture that says that we should be ready for that day. When we know there's a big day coming, we prepare for it. Even as we have been following the news with Hurricane Irma coming, right? we know that that hurricane is coming, so people are doing what? They are getting ready. Uh, this morning I wanted to find out what's happening with Irma, and I, I, I turned on um, CNN and they interviewed a, a teenage girl jogging like nothing happened. <laughs> she was just running and stopped by this reporter, and this reporter was asking all these intense questions about her family, and she's like, uh, I don't know. It looked like for her, nothing was coming, nothing was happening. And I think that's how many of us live. We don't live in light of that reality, that the eminent coming of Jesus, that, he, that that day is near. We kind of live like nothing's really happening. And I think what the Lord Jesus wants us to do is be prepared. So I guess the question I have for you is, are you ready? Are you ready for that day? Are you obeying Jesus today as you look forward to that day? But it's a definite future reality that that day is going to come. The second thing is the, the, the blessed obedience of the word. The blessed obedience. When you read through the book of Revelation, you see there are seven blessings in the book of Reve Revelation. We know that number seven is not um, a, a random choosing of John. The seven is the idea of completeness. I know that I'm going to be sharing a lot through this series in Revelation. So one of the things I'm doing is I'm going to try to put all the, 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 the things I say online afterward. So if you miss a, a reference or a quote, you can go back and check it out. Because I know that this is one of those books that I want to make sure I teach clearly and accurately. And I know you want to understand it. So if you miss something, you can go online hopefully later today and check it out. So these seven blessings of the book point to the complete and comprehensive blessing of God that he has for his people. Now, we do well to pay attention to these blessings if there's only seven. Look at verse 3. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Now, if you have read the Gospels, this is a very similar blessing that Jesus has said. 
He says it in Luke. He says it in other places that those who hear the word of God and and obey it will be blessed. It's actually dangerous for you just to hear the word of God and then not obey it. You're actually bringing judgment upon yourselves if you hear this word and you don't follow it. But if you hear this word, you are blessed if you obey it. But I think right off the bat, I think what John is trying to show us is that this book is not merely about prophecy. This book is also about moral instruction and practical implications for your life today. It is not just the big picture of what's going to happen. He wants to strengthen and encourage the church today. So, again, are you obeying Jesus today? Do you desire to hear the word of God so that you can grow and become like Christ? Is there anything in your life today that is contrary to the word of God? Now, if you're here and you're not, not a Christian and you're not maybe familiar with, with Christian words, this idea of, of being blessed, well, really the word is happy. Do you want to be happy? If you ask anybody in our society, do you want to be happy, the answer is going to be yes. Of course I want to be happy. Well, if you want to be happy, the Bible says, hear the word of God and obey it. Maybe those of you who are here who are struggling with joy and happiness may be the result of living in a fallen world. But it could also be that there is sin in your life, that you're not obeying the word of Jesus. This concept of hearing and obeying the Word of God is a theme that is prevalent throughout the book of Revelation. The, letter, the letters to the churches end with that repeated admonition. Let the one who hears, who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This idea of keeping or, or observing God's command is found ten times throughout this book. As one scholar notes, the purpose of this book is not merely to outline the future intervention of God or to portray the people of God symbolically in the light of divine reality, but to call the saints to accountability on that basis. This is a prophetic book of warning as well as comfort to the church. So, when you be, as we begin to, to approach this book, here's what you need to ask the Lord to, to do to your own heart. God, let me hear your warnings. And God, let me be comforted. You're just, the, the, every time the word of God is preached, you should be warned and you should be comforted. Are you comforted with the truth that you will be blessed in your obedience to the Lord Jesus? Sometimes we hear from the pulpit, all we hear is how we're not doing what we should be doing. How we're not obeying God and we feel this guilt kind of come down upon us. Beloved, there are some of you who are walking with Jesus. There are some of you who are obeying Jesus, who love Jesus. And you should have confidence and comfort that you will be blessed in the eyes of God. Because the Father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. It's not all negative. And yet there's some of you who are walking in sin. And you need to be warned that if you continue in that path, you will face trial and disaster. And he ends with, the time is near. So we need to be ready. We will only be blessed if we hear and obey. We move on to this, this third point, this Trinitarian promise. This beautiful Trinitarian promise in verse 4. So we see that Revelation is written to seven 
churches that are in Asia. Now, there's not only seven churches in Asia. There's other churches, some that are mentioned in other places in the Scriptures that are not mentioned here. But it's kind of this representative number. This, we're speaking to these seven churches as a representative of all the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins the body of this letter after this, that, 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 that first three verses. is more kind of an of introduction. And then he brings the body of the letter with this Trinitarian promise. Now, those of you who know your Bible know that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But the, the idea and the concept of a Trinity, we have one God with three persons, is woven throughout the Scriptures. We see it even here. Look at God's Word in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth. The blessing of this salutation is that the triune God offers grace and peace. Beloved, grace and peace only come from God. Grace is always first because it is only through grace we are brought peace. John begins to establish the absolute sovereignty of, of God the Father over all time. God is and was and is to come. A church that is struggling with persecution, struggling with violence against them, with hatred against them, they need to be reminded that God is in control, that God is from the beginning to the end, over history. One scholar writes, an uncertain future calls for one who by virtue of his eternal existence exercises sovereign control over the course of history. How comforting is it that behind your life is a good, loving Father who controls everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what He allows in your life that you may have a hard time dealing with. He knows that it ultimately will work for your good, believer. All things will work for your good. He, he has from the beginning to the end. So a church that is being persecuted, wondering why, is reminded off the bat that God is in control. He's trying to give the people courage as they face uncertainty. John modifies the end there. He doesn't say, uh, says, the peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. You would think it be who is, who was, and who will be. But right off the bat, he's trying to establish the whole purpose of this book. We are, we are longing for the one who is to come, the Lord Jesus. Our minds are, are drawn consistently and repeatedly throughout this book of, of him who is to come, who will give the church victory. What we're dealing with now will not always be our, our challenge and our struggle, because one day it will end. So, young people, praise God that God has given us a lot of young people in our church. Can I, can I give you a word of exhortation? Let me, let me encourage you to develop deep relationships with our senior saints. When you are with our senior saints and you kind of hear their stories and their lives and their trials, you see life in a brand new perspective. I had a chance to sit down with one of them this week and just hearing what he's dealing with and talking about how short life seems. 
Well, sometimes life seems to be moving pretty slowly. But when you're around someone who's lived for 80 years, we see the, the, the preciousness of time. And every time I, I spend time with, with a senior saint, I realize the problems I'm dealing with now pale in comparison to the future reality we have in Christ. I want to encourage you to do so. And, and uh, senior saints, that's your, also your, your plea to go reach and find a college student and share your, your testimony of God's grace in your life. So after he begins with God the Father, he then kind of moves to the seven spirits. The seven spirits who are before the throne is a reference to the Holy Spirit. There's not uniform agreement on this. If you were going to study this yourself and find commentaries, there's not going to be uniform agreement on this. I think it's the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to give you several reasons why. The first is grace and peace only come from God, and because God is the one who gives grace and peace, then this, this seven spirits has to be a reference to God. And we know elsewhere in John's letters, John 14 through 16, that the Holy Spirit is God. So number one, I think that this has to be the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who gives grace and peace. Number two, uh, John uses the number seven thematically throughout his book to communicate wholeness and completeness. We've already seen that already. He's trying to say this is the, the, the whole Holy Spirit is whole and complete. He's also just kind of using a symbolic name for him. We see the seven spirits. You'll see seven lampstands and seven eyes, seven angels of the churches. This idea you'll see throughout the book. Thirdly, Isaiah 11.2 references the Spirit of the Lord with seven descriptions. Hear what Isaiah 11.2 says. It says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So there are seven references to the spirit in Isaiah 11.2. So most scholars think that, that John is, is, is pulling out Old Testament prophecy right here at the beginning of his book. Lastly, Zechariah chapter 4. It mentions the prophecy of seven lamps and seven lips. And, and then the Zerubbabel says, I'm not really sure what you mean. And and then God clarifies it in verse 4 of chapter, um, chapter 6, verse 4, I'm sorry. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, for by might, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The perfect victory over the evil described in Revelation is done and accomplished by the spirit of the Lord. So the use of the seven spirits is found also in, in Revelation 3, 1, 4, 5, and 5, 6. And we'll kind of unpack those in the weeks ahead. But just notice uh, that he's trying to pull out this Old Testament, this imagery. So if you are going to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand Daniel, Zechariah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. And if you don't understand how God is, is, is speaking there, you're probably not going to understand accurately how God is speaking in the book of Revelation. But he ends this Trinitarian promise of grace and peace with our Lord Jesus Christ. So the normal Trinitarian blessing found elsewhere in Scripture is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Here he kind of reverses the order. We don't know exactly know why, but it seems to me that the reason why he's ending with Jesus is because he's then going to exalt Jesus into this great doxology in verse 5 and 6. Jesus is defined as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the king's of the earth. First, Jesus is the faithful witness. 
For those of you, many of you know that the word witness comes from the Greek word uh, martis, which is where we get our, our, our word martyr. Jesus Christ was the faithful witness unto death. He was dying for us. John uses that, that word throughout the book of someone who was faithful to the Lord in the face of death. So right at the beginning of the book, he's, he's, he's writing to a church that is going to die for what they believe. He's not writing to a church that will lose their jobs, will lose their friends. He's writing to a church that will lose their lives for what they believe. And he says there's one who's already done it. The faithful witness, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So as this church in Asia is facing that violence, they're reminded to look to Christ. And yet we know that this is not just, uh, Jesus was not just a witness unto death. He was also a faithful witness of the words of the testimony of God. In, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said before Pilate in, in John 18.37, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Beloved, let us be the ones who listen to the voice of Jesus Christ and bear witness to it in our lives. For to us to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's what he's trying to communicate to the church in Asia. Death is gain. Death is gain because you have Jesus. After talking about Jesus being the faithful witness, encouraging the church, he, he, he says that Jesus is also the firstborn from the dead. Look at Colossians 1.18. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus was not the first person who was resurrected in the Bible. We know that Lazarus was. But the resurrection of Jesus gave him priority and sovereignty as the Messianic king. Psalm 89.27 states, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So in that day, to be the firstborn was to have all authority and all the rights of the family. Jesus Christ was declared to be the firstborn, having all the rights and all the authority of the Father who created the world. He was, given the, the, he was placed in the highest place and was given the name that is above every name. But remember, therefore, Jesus is not only the firstborn from the dead, but he's also the ruler of the kings of the earth. John foreshadows this unfolding prophecy. We will see that Jesus will be declared Lord of lords and King of kings in Revelation 17, 14 and Revelation 19, 6. Jesus will give victory to his church. Therefore, we should be encouraged to remain faithful to him. Why would you go to another king? Why would you serve another lord? Why would you chase after these false idols in your life when there's only one who's preeminent? There's only one who is supreme. It is the Lord Jesus who is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. It's masterful how he's doing this, isn't it? He's beginning this book and he's got 22 action-packed pages of, of God's victory over evil. And right off the bat, he's just kind of giving you glimpses of what's to come. Love it. And even here, what do you see? You see the description of Jesus is the, is the unfolding of the gospel. 
Jesus was faithful witness unto death on a cross. He was declared to be preeminent as the firstborn from the dead in his resurrection. He was exalted to the right hand of God and given all authority in heaven and on earth. The most important aspects of Jesus' ministry were his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Which is why we sing about his death, his resurrection, and his ascension every single week. Which is why, if you're a member here, you should hear the the death, the resurrection, and the ascension every single week. Because it is the most important part of Jesus' life and ministry. We should want to think about the gospel all the time. We should, should bring our hearts to exalt the Lord. That's exactly what it did to John. He creates this hymn of worship of the Lord Jesus. This next heading, this blood-bought kingdom. Jesus deserves to be worshipped by his people for how he's loved us and how he's rescued us from from sin. This is a a hymn of praise to Jesus. Look at verse 5. To him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Just notice the verb tenses here. It says that Jesus loves us. That's not past tense. It's not that he has loved us, which is true, and he will love us, which is also true. It is he loves us. Imagine sitting in a basement, hearing gunfire in June as a 22-year-old named Ian, not knowing if you're going to survive. And in that moment, you know that God loves you. This is not just pie-in-the-sky stuff. This is not just, hey, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you in the midst of whatever you're dealing with today. Present tense, active. He has set his love upon us. Do not let anything rob you of the joy of the fact that you know that Jesus loves you. (laughs) The sweet Sweet love of Jesus. But the second phrase is past tense. Jesus has freed us from our sin by his blood. Do you see how that works? We are forgiven. We are cleansed. The ransom has been paid. His blood has brought us peace. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you sin this afternoon as a Christian, you are already forgiven. The ransom has already been paid because God loves us. And he stands before the Father declaring that you belong to him. Know of Christ's love and his redemption in his blood. If you are here and you're a non-believer, can I challenge you to consider these reasons why Christians would give glory, honor, and praise to God? You know, Christians are not perfect. We, we, rather, we, we recognize and we know how imperfect we really are. If you ask a Christian who's walking with Christ, they will, they will share how they struggle with sin, the internal battles that they, that they have. What separates a Christian and a non-Christian is that Christians recognize they can do nothing to change their sin. We realize that we cannot overcome our sin with good works and good words. We need a Savior. We need someone to pay for our mistakes. We realize we need Jesus and His cleansing and freeing blood. I hope that through this message and just conversations afterwards, I would hope that you would realize you need it too. 
I mean, how will you overcome your sins without a substitute, without a Savior, truly without Jesus? Really, just as, as the text goes on, it says another reason we can glorify Jesus is that he's made us a kingdom and priest to the Father. God has given the church responsibilities here on earth. We have been given the keys of the kingdom of God. We invite people to bow their knee to, the, to King Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel. We are reigning with Christ now through the preached word. We have already been made a kingdom, past tense. We are priests. And we are to offer our lives a living sacrifice unto the Lord. We are given a responsibility to mediate Christ's royal and priestly authority to the world. We have been restored in the new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, to now exercise dominion over this world through reconciling people to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, and one day soon, we will exercise that dominion forever and ever and ever over the whole earth. Well, lastly, we close with this idea of the coming king. The coming king. This is really just an introduction of the whole book. These themes we're going to be unpacking for the, for the months ahead. John is drawing our eyes to the past and to the future. And he begins with this word, behold. If you're ever reading your Bible and you come upon that, come upon that word, behold, what you should do is stop and pay attention. That's kind of your cue to say, listen up! Got it? I'm trying to wake you up because it's the end of the sermon. Okay? Behold. Right? This is what John is doing to you. He says, Behold, he is coming with clouds. With the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This verse is just so rich with Old Testament imagery. Jesus is the long-awaited Savior, as we saw in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. The Bible says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came like one, like a son of man. He is the Ancient of Days who was present before him. And to him was given dominion and glory, a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. In both places, in here in Revelation and in Daniel chapter 7, Notice it does not say that Jesus comes on the clouds. It says that he's coming with the clouds. It's a clear picture of divine authority. The prophecy of, of Daniel, like Zechariah, we'll look at in a moment, help us understand and interpret this, this book. The second phrase, second and third phrases, it says that every eye will see him. And really it's almost a parenthetical, the next thing he says. It says every eye will see him. Parentheses, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. All of these verses, these, these two phrases are alluding to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. John, we know that because John already referenced it in his gospel. So in John 19:37 and Zechariah 12:10, it says this: it says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. In Zechariah, there's this picture of Israel being defined against the Lord. And when they see him who they, whom they pierced, who, who is going to be their, their Messiah, there's this repentance and this wailing over their sin that they um, trust in the Messiah. 
It's, it's the nation of Israel who has come to repentance when they saw Christ. And yet here in Revelation, it doesn't say the nation. It says every tribe, all the tribes of the earth. John is reminding us, alluding to the great promise that God made through Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that through the offspring of Abraham, through the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just Israel who will be saved, but all the tribes of the earth, all who bow their knee to King Jesus will be saved. God is bringing salvation to all people. The victory of Jesus will bring the nation Israel and the nations to repentance. And of course, this end time victory will also produce another kind of wailing, a wailing over their sin, but also a wailing of judgment. For those who do not know Christ as Savior will experience judgment. They will weep because the time has passed. The storm has come. Friends, these things will soon take place. The time is near. Are you ready? Repent, friends. If you are not ready, if you are living in sin of any way, living for yourself, not trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, repent. Today. Repent today. Do not put it off. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We need to live in the eminent reality that Christ could return at any moment. One day we will all stand before the Lord God Almighty. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is, who was, and who is to come. The Lord has fixed that day of his return. He is coming. But now he's demonstrating patience, great patience, because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants all to come to eternal life. So church, God is giving you more time to share this good news to announce that the King is coming, to announce that you are loved by Jesus and that you can have your sins cleansed and be freed from the bondage of, of misery, of living to a false God. Friend, beloved, Jesus is a glorious, merciful, kind Savior. But He will soon come as a glorious, powerful, victorious warrior. And all who stand against him will perish. We can't predict the future. We don't know what kind of persecutions lie ahead for, the, for our church. But we do know who sits on the throne. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He has bought us peace with his blood. We are therefore called to live as priests to God our Father, sacrificing our lives for the cause of the gospel of Christ. Beloved, He is worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our money. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of our worship. He is worthy because He is, and He was, and He is to come. Father, I thank You so much for the picture, the magnificent picture of a glorious Mighty God. God, we thank you that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
I pray for all of us here, God, that we would live in light of that reality. That as, as we've heard already, that blessed is the one who hears the words of this prophecy and who obeys it. God, help us be, help us be people who are blessed, who are happy in Christ because we hear and obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.